so it's here's not heresy. It's come no, on. No, it's Harris' son. Wow! They gave us nothing but tradition and no argument. All they did was get on this stage, yell real loud, and set a straw man on fire. Okay, now this is I I, I was not impressed. <laughs> Respectfully, that sounds like a little bit of a dodge. I'm claiming victory. So where I come from, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Why is this so difficult? I'm not Greetings and welcome to another edition of Gish Gallop Radio. I'm John the Pridget and along with me is... Gish the Galloper. And today we're going to talk fast and sell used cars. Stick with us. This is the first word. I know. This is not just a response which Princess Leia tells you that she loves you. I know is talking about a state of affairs about the world and yourself. To say I know something or anything is not a claim of arrogance... It's just a claim of knowledge. And contrary to the uh, opinions of some, saying that you know something until someone can convince you otherwise is not actually a fallacy. For example, I know that I exist and I think that I'm reasonable for believing that I exist until someone can demonstrate otherwise. Nothing fallacious about that. So when someone says that they know something like God exists or that they raised, or that God raised Jesus from the dead, all they're saying is, this is what I know, this is what I believe until I have been given ample reason to think otherwise. And unless and until that happens, to say I know something about the world, I know something about the state of reality, I know something about God's existence, I know something about the resurrection of Jesus, I know something. It's not being arrogant. It's not being... Uh, super intelligent or trying to be above everyone else it is merely claim to have knowledge about the world nothing more nothing less it's just i know welcome back to the main show and today we're talking about what jesus thought about himself and i'm using my used car salesman voice there you go well, John Dominic Crossan said that what we, we may not know what Jesus thought of himself, but the image of Jesus looks a lot like the scholars who write about him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, I mean, yeah. that's a paraphrase, but that's essentially what he said. There are and so he's many, guilty of it, too. Right. And he admits that as well. He, yeah. You know, he says it's somewhat of an embarrassment, academic embarrassment of all these historical reconstructions of Jesus that end up looking more like uh, the person writing than it does the historical Jesus. Right. Right. So, for example, John Dominique Crossan was very interested in uh, a, a peaceful world, a world uh, that has been redeemed and is yeah. a world of peace, and uh, not so much interested in whether certain historical things actually happened. Right. So what he came up with is a Jesus who is on the cross as an image, a metaphor, a picture, an analogy of the restoration of all things. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the giant uh, garbage pickup job is what right refers to. Right. You've got... Yeah. Uh, uh, who is the other one I just thought of? There's there's another great example. Oh, uh, Jesus mythicists, people like uh, Richard Carrier, you yeah. know, they come away with a Jesus that didn't exist. You know, oftentimes, these right. things reflect whatever you expected to find there to begin right. with. Now, I, before we get into this, I, I do want to say that there's a, a good book by uh, Bruce Molina. It's not even about Jesus, but it's called Portraits of Paul, yeah. an archaeology of ancient personality. And if you're... If you, because psychologizing people is... We're professional. Yeah. Because psychologizing ancient people is a little bit dubious, what you can do is you can... What we know about collectivist cultures and ancient peoples in general, just from their writings or whatever, that's a good book to just kind of get your... 
get, Paul is not really about even the Apostle Paul so much as it is about trying to situate what ancient persons were like. And it's really Who is a, this? Who wrote this? Uh, Bruce Molina. He's one of those social okay. science yeah. uh, scholars uh, for the uh, New Testament world. Anyway, it's a good book. Uh, helps you understand what ancient persons are like. Because sometimes we want to think that all people at all times and places are alike. Right. And just like modern contemporary individualist Westerners or whatever. And that's not even true about the world now, mm-hmm. you know, much less what people were like 2,000 years ago. So yeah. um, there's so many different historical Jesus books that it's it's almost like wading into Pauline scholarship. Where do you start? Um, so I, books, I, I, I think uh, Keener's treatment of the historical Jesus is really good. Um, ben Weatherington has a book out that kind of catches you up. Um, about the historical Jesus. Oh, really? I'd be interested in that. Yeah, uh, Third Quest or something like that. And, okay. And um, he, he uh, just kind of brings you up to date. He does a chapter just of real quick of the first and second quest and then gets into all the issues of... of it's, it's a little bit dated now, but nothing's moved much. Great, so there's some so, good yeah. resources yeah. to get you started on studying this sort of thing. Now... Here's the deal, Jonathan. I um, I was preparing for um, a recent discussion that I had, and I I'll, t- I'll just say it this way. And I think a lot of people are where I was on this. Um, back in the day when I first got into Christian philosophy and Christian apologetics and things like this, I found very quickly that certain arguments are stronger for certain people than other ones are. So, for example. Uh, Christopher Hitchens famously one time said that uh, to Douglas Wilson in the movie Collision, or I think it's called Collision, uh, that he thought the design argument was the best argument. I don't think the design argument is the best. I think it's really good, but it's not my favorite argument. Um, Some people like the moral argument the best. There's a lot of people who think that the moral argument is the best theistic argument. I can't wrap my my head around that. It's because they like transcendental arguments. Yeah. Because everyone but you likes presuppositions. Well, I, hey, I brought a free will argument that, that is yeah. kind of that way. And 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 part of the reason I... Okay, so let me say it this way. My favorite argument for God's existence is... The Kalam. I think the Kalam is as close to a slam dunk, if not a slam dunk, of anything that we've seen. Yeah. And, and there are other people who don't. You get these apologetic But hipsters. it's a philo- philosophical argument. That's not evidence for anything. <laughs> right, you, can't put, right. you can't put the Kalam in a, in a test tube. And right, that's right. Well, he's making fun of certain comments we've received about yeah. the Kalam uh, in case anyone thinks he's actually raising it. It's criticism. the most debunked. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I, I like the Kalam. My, um, well, here's what I was going to say about that before you go off, yeah. is there are a lot of apologetics hipsters who don't like the Kalam, and I suspect it's because... It's so popular. It's like people who don't like Star Wars or, or don't like U2. Yeah. yeah. Or don't like C.S. Lewis. You know, is it whatever's the be- the biggest, most popular, famous thing? Yeah. Well, then that must be not as good as my thing, which is an argument I dug out of ancient medieval literature somewhere that nobody's ever heard of right. that has terms that they don't know what it means. So I can sound smarter than everybody else. Obviously, I'm going overboard a little bit with that. But here's the bottom line I- I've been studying the Kalam, you've been studying the Kalam for. Uh, 15 years maybe, yeah. and I've yet to hear a good response to this argument. I haven't, I haven't heard a good response to even the teleological argument, which is not my favorite either. Yeah, I agree. But it's, <laughs> that's not really designed. It's complicated right. like everything else that we've experienced. But that's not, I mean, you know, I haven't right. heard. I haven't heard any. We're, we're also, uh, 
me probably more than anyone, I, I think like evolution is dumb. Mm-hmm. So I have no problem saying that. There's something yeah. for the comment section. <laughs> yeah, I have no problem saying that. And, and this idea of unguided, you know, if you can't even get away from teleological language when you talk about that kind of thing, yeah. you know, um, especially when you watch like the Nature Channel or Animal Planet or one of those things where they're, they're like, let's see how evolution designed and see how uh, it aimed for the... Really? Okay. Yeah, there's a term for that. And they actually, biological evolutionists actually teach in the classroom not to speak that way as though it has as though evolution has an agenda right yeah. there's a term for that i forget what it is but anyway well they uh, do it anyway yeah so i mean i took biology at Plasky technical college which was a community college where um they didn't really have an agenda there they're just like well we're going to cut up this frog now <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i'm but that's not what i'm saying i'm saying they actually teach that you shouldn't speak as though the evolution itself, yeah, no, as I if know there is such saying, a thing, has an agenda. But I never encountered that. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I, and you, in fact, encountered people who don't have an agenda or didn't seem to have Right, they okay. didn't care. It's like, well, yeah. they, they wanted to get the class over with so they could get right. on to whatever. Right. They, <laughs> I mean, so you know, I loved, by the way, I loved community college. Mm-hmm. I, that, I it's a great it. option. Yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, there's a great meme going around. This is this is nothing to do with the show. There's a great <laughs> meme going around. I think Wintry Knight shared it. Uh, you ought to go follow Wintry Knight. But he says something like, uh, it has this meme, and it's something like, it's got this guy like drinking a beer on his couch with a T-shirt that says whatever university or whatever it is. And then on the other hand, there's this guy like working on a pole. He's like a telephone yeah. you know, guy or whatever, an electrical operator. And it's like this guy and it's the college guy has a hundred thousand dollars of debt and no job. Cause he got a <laughs> philosophy degree. Right. It goes to the other guy and it's like, this guy spent however much $10,000 at community college and he makes $80,000 a year. Plasky technical yeah. college. I'd, I'd sport their, uh, uh, sweatshirt. Oh, but that reminds me of a joke. What's the difference between a large pizza and an apologetics degree? What's that? A large pizza can feed a family of four. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair enough. <laughs> Although when you tell jokes like that, you know some people think that makes you sound like a used car salesman. That's right. All right. So um, the reason I raised this every thing about, used car salesman I knew made money though. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because yeah, right. <laughs> in it for the money. Somebody's right. There's some used car salesmen who are good people out there. That's right. I, why do they get all the used cars? Used car salesmen are awesome. I've my look. I was 40 years old last year when I bought yeah. my first almost new car. Right. I. Why the hate haters? Yeah, I don't. You know. Yeah. Okay. So the reason I raise about the Kalam. It is because when I heard that and the design argument to a lesser degree, yeah, I thought this is. I still to this moment, and I want to be careful how I say this. I still to this moment have a hard time with atheists who I know are familiar with this argument to some degree. Yeah, although yeah. As we're finding out more and more all the time. Not, they're not as familiar as they think they are. But right. to those who are familiar with this thing, it's it's. I have a hard time taking people seriously who don't see this. You know, I mean, I do take them seriously. I try to reach them. I try to talk with them. You don't take their arguments. Make an ontological distinction like our last show. Yeah. You don't take their arguments. Yes, seriously. that's right. That's right. Now you're now you're throwing it back to <laughs> right. me. Yeah. I take them seriously. But what I guess I mean is it's like, did you understand the argument? Because yeah. that's like the closest thing to a yeah. proof. Okay. But the resurrection, which is the linchpin of Christianity. I think that's as... Almost a slam dunk. 
just because all the competing hypotheses fail, that yeah. that for me, I like it um, on the par with the Kalam as far well, as this is what I'm coming to. Yeah. Because on the one hand, it can't. It, it's not a deductive argument. It's an inference to the best explanation, right? So, so in a sense, like in terms of tight philosophical cases, it's not like the Kalam. Yes, but, but we don't want to be snobs about. No, I agree. About I don't philosophy the way that scientists science, are. Soft, yeah. You know, um, I agree. But but I'm coming. Multiple to this. ways of knowing. Okay. But for a long time, I really had a like. I wished that the resurrection case was stronger. You know, um, but then I I discovered several years ago or, or noticed what I don't think gets highlighted enough, which is what we're here to talk about today. And when I understood that, yeah, it changed everything. Yeah. Because what do we hear most often about the resurrection case? Uh, a naturalistic explanation is always just as good or is better. Um, yeah, a, any, any naturalistic right. explanation is better than a supernatural explanation. Uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. A lot of people believe this happened, therefore I'm supposed to believe it happened, and that's ridiculous. You know, all, all these kind of things. And what they all have in common is that they all focus on the facts that come after the resurrection itself. They never focus on, dare I say, the background data that yeah. we could consider, which is God's existence and what Jesus thought about himself. Yeah. So do you want to make any comments? Because well, I don't want to run this What Jesus show. thought of himself from the best sources that we have, and like it or not, the Gospels. Uh, and I, I think Ben Witherington makes a compelling case, not so much about his authorship case, but he makes a compelling case apologetically for what, the inclusion of John. Mm-hmm. Um, the four gospels, not the synoptics, as our best. That's just that's just academic snobbery on oh, yeah. the left. That's right. That's ridiculous. Um, I, I think you have to look at well, all four gospels, and yeah. even A. T. Robinson, who was nowhere by any means Mister Conservative, right? All of his datings of all of the documents were earlier than most. Uh, I think there's just a trend and a habit that scholars get into of okay, we're going to date it this, and that's just going to be a consensus before they've actually examined the arguments. And, you know, if you're taking a head count, sure, the majority of scholars there will sometimes, you know, Mark's earliest gospel, and then they'll start dating the others, and they'll put John in the 90s, or some, some people will even go as far as the second century, right? But that's without having to deal with the arguments. Once you start art and giving the arguments for the dating and stuff, the stuff yeah. becomes earlier and earlier and earlier, yeah. and and the the counter arguments, even by the consensus of scholars who have a vested interest, by the way, in it not being early, just for a talking point. No eyewitness. That's the talking point. Mm-hmm. No, it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. There's no scholarship behind it. That's opinion. So, yeah, and on top of that, um, yeah. as I said in a previous episode, it is the case that a slight majority of scholars believe that someone that whoever wrote John was a direct disciple of Jesus or someone giving you the testimony of a direct right. disciple of Jesus. Now, that's not a strong majority. It's a slight majority, but here's what it means. It means this deal about that, we, you know, this was an obvious fabrication of the later church. This is myth-building, blah, blah, blah. The Johannine community <clears throat> put together. Yeah. yeah all, well, and, and what we've discovered about this ancient writing, I mean, uh, we know for a fact that just because there might be a theological agenda, especially with John, doesn't negate its historicity. 
That's right. And yeah. here's the thing. John does include theologically rich elements, probably more so than the other Gospels. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that what he's telling you isn't true. It right. means he's telling you in an artful way. Yeah. And I'll just throw this in there. Um, you know, uh, the, I don't know how many are familiar. I was asking in the forum about this, but with the undesigned coincidences thing, yeah. you know, there are a lot of those in John that I'll just throw one out there. This has nothing to do with the show topic, but it's super interesting. So I'll just throw one out there. Um, uh, so John, you know, the story, some of you will be familiar with the story where, uh, they come to arrest Jesus and one of the guys gets his ear cut off. Right. right? <laughs> so, so then, uh, in John, uh, and I hope I get the details right. In John, he doesn't. It doesn't have the healing of the ear. I think that's only in Luke. Yeah. Nevertheless, whenever uh, Jesus is standing in that same chapter, John eighteen, when he's standing before Pilate, he makes this big case about, or he says this big thing about, um, my people aren't interested in physical combat and you know bringing a physical war and yeah. all these kind of things. Um, how, why could he say that? Because after all, we did just see a pretty combative thing just happen. <coughs> well, I was also going to say what's interesting about that is John usually gets tagged for the one that tries to one-up the other Gospels. Yeah. But yet... He doesn't include this supernatural Right, thing. at that particular point. Yeah. So, but so, here's the thing. Why could John not... Why, why, or why could Jesus say that and feel confident about it? Well, because even though it's not told to us in John, in Luke we hear that Jesus actually healed this guy's ear. Yeah. So now go back to John where Jesus is saying that, you know, this thing about, you know, that we're not here to, you know, raise a physical battle and all that. Um, why could he confidently say that? Well, because this puts them on, in a tough position. They can go produce the guy who got his ear cut off, but he's now got his ear, if Luke's to be believed, right? <laughs> so all this is going to show is, what are you guys rolling this guy? And he's got both his ears. Right. And if they say, well, he did get his ear cut off, but Jesus healed him, Oh, so Jesus is interested in, in <laughs> right. healing people, you know. So yeah. I mean, whatever you do there. But the thing is, that was not. If you people would say, well, that's John uh, trying to shore up what Luke said, or that's Luke trying to, you know, well, it wouldn't be Luke if you put it a late date for John. Right. Luke's not trying to shore up John. John's not trying to shore up Luke because he doesn't mention the ear being healed. It's an undesigned coincidence that kind of testifies that these stories are telling you the truth in yeah. both cases. Right. So anyway, uh, we can trust John. We can trust these these books. But even if you don't think we can, see, I'm making it harder. On my, well, let me explain how this works first, okay? So I call this recalibrated plausibility. I didn't come up with this. This has been in the literature. In Mike Lycona's massive work on the resurrection, he has about the equivalent of a page on this. Um, now, he's written journal articles and other stuff where he actually goes further but he, but in the book, he only has that. And then in Reasonable Faith, Craig actually spends, in a much shorter book, a lot longer time talking about this. But the problem is nobody points this out. I call it recalibrated plausibility. So here it goes, Jonathan. You tell me, you're an atheist, and you tell me that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you've said. So I'm sitting here, well, dadgummit, he's right, and a miracle is the least likely thing to happen. And what am I going to do about this? I say headed off with what I call recalibrated plausibility. We need to recalibrate your what you think is plausible in this story. And, and here's the analogy, and those who have listened to me for you know the past few weeks have heard this, but I need to put it on a podcast here so we can point to it. So, so here's the thing. So let's imagine that you're 
in a coffee shop and you don't know anything about NASA, you don't know anything about space exploration, you don't know anything about the moon landing, and you're not too skeptical to believe that it happened, okay? But you don't know anything you're about not it. Matt Chisholm. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> you don't have to uh, no, he believes in the moon landing. Yeah, of course he does. You have to have. I that don't know what he for the ancient aliens. Yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, but but so but let's imagine. And we weren't talking about Matt Dillahunty. We were talking about Matt Chisholm. Yes. Just want everybody from the be Bible Rowdown, our sister the, podcast, fantastic podcast that we're just giving a hard time about. So okay, so you don't know anything about NASA or the moon landing or space exploration, and you meet a group of people who are excitedly telling you how they just saw a video of this guy named Neil walking on the moon. Can you believe it? Neil was walking on the moon. Now, if you don't know anything about space exploration, you're going to find this to be incredibly implausible. In fact, it's an extraordinary claim that would require an extraordinary kind of evidence to demonstrate this because a guy walking on the moon, that's ridiculous. Now, let's imagine that later that day, you do learn that there was the, there is this organization called NASA, and in the 1960s, NASA was uh, trying to do space exploration and had the power to put a man on the moon if they wanted to, right? You, but you, curiously, you, don't in 2000. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but here's the thing. So so do I get to play the skeptic. Yeah, you can <laughs> okay. play the you can play. But so Neil, then you also find there's this guy named Neil who was claiming to be a part of NASA's special program as if he was carrying around a sign saying, just watch my life and see what I do as a part of this incredible program. Okay. Now, now that you know these features, that there's a force capable of putting a man on the moon, mm -hmm. and that there was a guy named Neil claiming to be a part of that program, mm -hmm. does the claims of the coffee shop group who are saying, we saw this guy named Neil walking on the moon, does that seem implausible now? No, it seems incredibly plausible. Well, did you get extraordinary evidence? Not really. You just learned some information you didn't know before. Mm. But what it did was it recalibrated the plausibility for the discussion. And now what sounded like a ridiculous claim is now the most plausible claim. Yeah. Well, about ECRI or Sagan Saw, whatever you want to call it, I, I agree with uh, Dr. Kevin Lewis at Biola, that there's no such thing as super-duper turbocharged evidence as opposed to other evidence. And I agree with Dr. Mike Lacona, who says it doesn't require a, a different category of evidence. It just requires additional evidence. Right. What, and yeah. he famously said, what is extraordinary evidence? Does it glow? I mean, what are we right, talking yeah. about? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, here, but here's the thing. But, but, okay, go ahead. Okay, but what about people who refuse to recalibrate at all. Okay, well, we'll get okay, there. Okay, you're getting to God, and you're yeah. like, oh, okay, well, that, that shifts things, and then, but, but I don't even accept that. Well, I, let me explain the analogy first, yeah. so in case it's not clear. God is like NASA, mm -hmm. in that just like NASA had the sufficient power to put a man on the moon, God would have the sufficient power to raise someone from the dead, and just like Neil was walking around claiming to be a part of uh, NASA's special program, Jesus, and we're going to get to this, this, is what the whole show's about, yeah. Jesus was claiming to be a part of God's special program as if he was holding a, a sign that says, just watch my life yes. and see do, what happens. Do you understand? That's the extent of the analogy. And the 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 uh, the lowbrow, low-hanging fruit of, an, uh, of the intellectual gene pool wants to attack analogies because they can't attack the main point. Um, geniuses use analogies. I want to clear this up real quick. Thank you. Smart people use analogies, and smart people also engage with analogies insofar as what they're intended to communicate. Yeah. Trying to take shots at analogies is such Bush League stuff that it's not even... You talk about not taking certain things seriously. It, unless you can demonstrate an actual problem with the analogy, not just a kicking against the analogy... 
Yeah, it's it's exactly attacking the thinks. analogy instead of the point of the analogy, right? right? And so what you'll it's hear such amateur hour. So, it's ridiculous. so that so that, so if it, if you agree with me, and I don't know how any intelligent person could deny this, that learning about NASA and learning about Neil, if you agree with me, that would make the now the claim plausible, right? Then you have to agree that that would be the case with the resurrection if we knew that there was a God, right. and if we knew that Jesus was walking around saying that he was God's special agent, right? Okay. If you deny in one case, you have to deny in the other. Faced with that, yes. what I've heard in response is, well, yeah, but uh, we have great evidence for, and this is what you were pointing to, yeah. we have great evidence for NASA. We know that NASA exists. We we can have video about space shells taking off and stuff, and we know Neil was to get a birth certificate on right. Neil. The point and all is that. out there <laughs> floating right past you. <laughs> right. You know? Right. This, this is why, you know... This, it drives me nuts. That's yeah. why I had to go off on this because right. people totally don't want to get the point of it now. Right. But but thankfully, there's intellectual people who understand the the use of analogies and follow it. But because public education has made people dumber, we need to. Well, let's be fair. It may be that some people just don't understand the analogy, and not because they're not smart, but because it, you know you you need to think about it to get what we're saying here. It's it's. But here's the thing. So the next criticism that will come, and it's kind of like that criticism, is, yeah, but we don't have... Yeah, I agree that if we believed God exists and that Jesus was saying that about himself, now the resurrection is more plausible as an explanation. But we don't have good reason to believe that God exists. Okay, that's why classical apologists like I am and like I suspect Dr. Pritchett is, more or less, will bring an argument for God's existence or two or three before they get to the resurrection so that this works, so that you see it. And if your criticism is, well, I don't think that God, that we have good reason to believe God exists, well, then we have to go back to the, let's put resurrection on pause for a minute, go back to the theistic arguments like the fantastic Kalam argument, or what is more persuasive with the general population, uh, the moral argument, and I think the free will argument, things like that. But we need to go back to those and do more work there so that when we get to the resurrection, that's already been settled, right? right? And we have God. Right, so that's how it works. God's existence and Jesus thinking about Himself this way and right. claiming that about Himself is background information that makes the resurrection case much stronger, yeah. and I think closer to the we're, level we're, of. We're, we're asking people to understand this. We're not right. asking people to like it. Right. We're not asking right. people to, to agree with it. We're just saying this is how this is how it works. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the problem with the I don't like it or I don't agree with it. Make your case. Yeah. Make your case against it. Because that's what a lot of people fail to do. Uh, the lack theism thing again. Um, or or you come up... Uh, you've said before, and I, I agree with you, sometimes people want to give alternative explanations uh, as a, a way. I applaud the effort more so than the people who give no explanations. But like with the Kalam, I've just not seen Bart Ehrman even or... Cross and Cross and Borg back when he was alive uh, and uh, Funk and all they have never given credible arguments against the resurrection. That's right. That can that, that can't be answered, and not just answered as in oh well we have an excuse for that. Right. No, we have an answer for it that is more likely than what you're saying. Right. You know. And so now what's I mean happened- when you get to the point where dogs eat the body, where's you? Where does that come from? You're just well, it's ad hoc. More you're ad just hoc. Yeah, you're yeah. just throwing stuff out there at that point. So we we know why 
some people don't want to engage it, but I at least respect people who do, even if they're going to get clobbered. Yes, and here's the thing. I agree, and here's the thing. That's why the, the thing has changed now to where a lot of people are saying, are, are being becoming, well, not a lot of people, but there are people who are mythicists who are saying either that this whole thing never happened because Jesus never existed, which <laughs> good luck with that, right? Yeah. Or... Well, yeah, he, he existed and all that, but all we have is the testimony of Christians on this. Okay, well, first of all, you got to knock down the Gospels, and real scholars don't just dismiss the Gospels. They deal with every specific statement in the Gospels. Yeah, I mean, there's and, a reason why even the Jesus Seminar wanted to play ball, but then even they fizzled out, and nobody takes them seriously anymore. Right. I don't know of anyone who takes the Jesus Seminar Well, and seriously. even the Jesus Seminar doesn't just say trash the Gospels. Yeah. So you've got to get rid of the Gospels. Well, you've got they, to get the synoptics. Uh-huh. The synoptics. What they, you're saying they take the synoptics seriously. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to deal with the Gospels. you got to deal with where the scholarship is on that. Yeah. you got to deal with Paul and 1 Corinthians 15. you got to deal with Tacitus. you got to deal with Josephus. You got, and I know that for those of you who are skeptics, you're already thinking of things you could say about each one of these things. But understand, you don't just deal with one. you got to deal with all of them. And if the criticism is, yeah, but... It all just comes back to Christian yeah. claims because the Gospels are clearly Christian claims. Paul is clearly Christian claims. Tacitus probably got it from Christians, which we could talk about. Right. I don't think that's necessarily. And the here's case. what I like: Josephus about- is an interpolation. If your whole thing comes yeah. down to we can't trust anything a Christian says, what understand that what you're asking for, and we've said this many times on this show, is you're asking for a witness to a car crash who doesn't believe the car crash actually happened. Right. And this is what I like about this whole recalibrated plausibility thing too. As an apology. Apologetic, it sticks with the main thing because so many times in apologetics we go start chasing the Jesus seminar, which is a fad that knocks itself out and, and ends up not being relevant. Or, I mean, even the aforementioned Ben Witherington and Daryl Bach writing books in response to <clears throat> Dan Brown, as if we're supposed to take that seriously. So, so often we get distracted with faddish apologetics that what's the main thing that's being buzzed about by the yeah. media that will never last. And it's it, it, it turns out to be silly. I mean, even Bart Ehrman was talking about the Da Vinci Code. So you get all these little things like that, but what I like about this is it just sticks with the main idea. Yeah, well, thank just you. Stick with and, the yes. main thing. and again, I didn't come up with this, but nobody right. highlights this right in debates, I should say, or in discussions like this. They put it in their books and stuff, but then it doesn't come up as a strong part of the case. And I think that's a problem. See, the way I get to, and we're going to say more about it in just a second, but when I, the way I get to what I think are the best evidences and arguments to use, yeah. there's two ways to do that, as far as I'm concerned. And it goes back to what you just said. What some apologists do is, what is novel? What? And I realize I just brought an argument that recently <laughs> that, that is novel to some degree. But what they'll think is, what what is novel, or like the hipster apologist, what does nobody pay enough attention to, or whatever. And that's good, because that does help us occasionally to find new stuff. But here's the thing. What I do is, and I think this is the most faithful way, is you think about your own life, and you think, what is it that really convinces me? What is it that I go to, that if I were ever to have a moment of doubt or something, what is it that I go to that's like, oh yeah, but I forgot about that. (laughs) That solves everything. And for me, that's the Kalam. And the uh, and the resurrection case with this part of it. That's yeah. how I came to this. The the other thing that you can do is try to look at what convinces other normal everyday people. Hooray for normal people. Yeah, and 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 with them, it may be something like the moral argument, or as I've begun to discover, the free will argument over the past. 
I've not been thinking about the free will argument for a minute. I've been thinking about it for two and a half years. Right. So I found it to be really helpful. Now, here, here's why I think that is. It's because there's external arguments like the Kalam and the design argument where you kind of have to look outside yourself at the way the world is. Then there's moral stuff that's internal and the free will stuff is <laughs> internal. Normal people can just think about yeah, what do I just, what do I have access to? You know, right. and that's that. So, but anyway, um, so when it comes to the recalibrated plausibility, what I'm calling this, the God plus Jesus equals resurrection thing, is uh, the thing that's great about it is, is I thought about what convinces me. And what convinces me personally, Braxton, it doesn't have to be what convinces you. What convinces me is the Kalam plus uh, this resurrection with this feature to it, mm-hmm. you know, so... Well, I was just going to say about the the novel, the hipster thing versus the free will. That's not novel. Yeah. Uh, introducing an old idea into a fresh conversation in a new way is not the same thing as novelty. Same with people who want to argue from beauty or abstract objects. People have been discussing these things for 2,000 years now, you know. Right. Uh, we still have our, uh, on at least on my agenda, to do the transcendentals. At some point, do a three-part mm-hmm. series on that for Trinity Radio. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think that we should exclude those kinds of art. Like the the one Christian who got upset that you introduced this. Now wait a minute. I mean, <laughs> settle down here. This is a good signpost to God. And cumulative case apologetics is, I think, a good well to go dip the bucket in. And, and, and yeah, now, now a lot of people might not know what that is, so right. I'll just say go back and listen to an episode we did on cumulative case apologetics from last season. Yeah, and, and start bringing uh, some of these old ideas, like you said, that connect to people internally as well as externally. And, and, and people say, well, uh, the the radical skepticism that anything intuitive you know, has to be dismissed because there's no... <clears throat> That's not most people, right? You know, right. And, and when I was at Mount Zion, I, I, I an unplanned going, on, you know, rant about celebrating normal people as opposed to the, right. you know, uh, there is something to be said about that. But but for you, there is something more at stake here with all of this, and that's mm-hmm. we want to win souls to the gospel, mm-hmm. right? So that's right. That's always underlying everything, and so I think a lot of apologists forget that aspect of it too. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about the resurrection, there was a point to Jesus' death. There was a point to the resurrection. And we want people to understand that yeah. as well. Now, theological claims don't factor into the case uh, uh, for what the death of Jesus Christ was about and what the resurrection was about. It doesn't factor into the case of the event, trying to historically demonstrate the event. But it does in the sense of connecting with people when you get to the gospel message about sin and death and salvation yeah. and things like that. So uh, there's still another step to go after recalibrating one's understanding of what's plausible. Yeah, I think what you're saying is once you demonstrate the resurrection, the, the next step is you should believe it right. and what it stands for has impact right. for your life. Okay. Now, so, that, that I do want to make it... So that's different than the event, but when you're talking about... Jesus' self-understanding prior to the resurrection. Yeah. What differentiates that from making theological claims about the death and resurrection itself? Well, because the, because the point there is not a theological claim. And, and I'm going to say more about this because we want to get to but it. But we've finally. already said it's not a psychological claim either. 
it's a claim about it's a claim about what Jesus thought about himself, right? It right. is in not a how sense. he felt about it, but what what he believed about himself, insofar as he communicated, which is all we have to go on. Right, and I'm going right. to give the evidence for that. But if someone right. wants to say no, he didn't, uh, or or uh, I he did, but he was wrong. Okay, fine. You can think he's wrong. That's right. fine. But I'm going to demonstrate that's what he thought. Because the point is not whether you think he was right or not. The point is if he thought that. And if God exists to raise someone from the dead, and Jesus was saying, yeah. watch this. Yeah. He <laughs> then, picked that guy to then, raise. Uh, then that means that when you then bring the the after-the-fact stuff, like that uh, Jesus really did die, people thought that he appeared to them after his death, right. that they were willing to die for us, they changed their lives, all these kind of things, this makes that sing because it was in some sense, predictive. And I'm being modest with my claims about what Jesus thought about himself. So let's get into it. So first of all, I know that it is a favorite among skeptics to say, I don't care what the scholars say. Well, first of all, you should, because these historians and these scholars... Have thought about it a lot longer than you have. (laughs) Yes, and they have put hours and hours and hours and hours into a study where they didn't just watch YouTube videos or read whatever books they wanted to. They, it was guided study where they had to read stuff that didn't confirm their own position, right. stuff that they wouldn't have even read from their own position, and little nuanced things uh, come to light for them. So you should care. But uh, that said, I am going to give you what the scholars say, and then I'm going to back it up and tell you why they say it. Okay, Both of those are important. First of all, uh, I contacted Mike Lycona about this and asked him if I could quote him on this, and he said I could. He said, almost universally, if not universally. Uh, well, when you say universally, it's almost universally, because there's always outliers, right? Right. But un- almost universally... Bob Price is out there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Almost universally, scholars agree that Jesus thought of himself as God's special eschatological agent, and what we mean by that is God's agent to bring about the kingdom. That's what scholars think Jesus thought about himself universally almost, right? Um, That means that it's pretty close to a bedrock fact, if not a bedrock fact, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's important. Uh, What about Jewish scholars? William Lane Craig has in his book, Reasonable Faith, uh, that when when Jewish scholars do consider the personal claims or self-understanding of Jesus, the majority of Jewish scholars conclude that Jesus did believe himself to be the Messiah, though, of course, they consider him to have been tragically deluded in this opinion. Right. Okay. Well, and they they would say that, of course, because they have to as they're Jews, right? Re- well, religious Jews. Not all Jews are religious. Well, that's true. Jewish, but, but well, certainly the non-religious Jews aren't going to say this, right? And the Jew, the, the religiously Jewish Jews aren't going to say it. Right. So yeah. So uh, Michael Icona does say in his book that Jesus viewed himself as God's eschatological agent, the figure through whom the kingdom of God was coming, is also widely recognized by biblical scholars and amply attested in the so- uh, in the sources. Yeah. Um, so why, why do they think this? Why do the scholars believe this about Jesus? Well, one is, and I know that the skeptics are not going to like this, but just bear with me here. You get statements like, uh, you get statements like this, quote, if by the spirit of God, I am casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 12, 28 and Luke 11, 20. That's the 20. Bible though. I know we're going to, I'm going to talk about that. He is also said to have told John's disciples that John could be assured that Jesus was the Messiah since he was doing those things other others believe the Messiah would do. You know, that's in Matthew 11, 4 through 5, Luke 7, 22. It's in the Q source. It's in Isaiah 61, 1. If there's a Q source. Well, yeah. And it's a saying, okay, M is the stuff that's only in Matthew. That's not found in the other synoptics. Mm-hmm. L is the stuff found in Luke, not found in the other synoptics. 
Q is the stuff shared between, it's thought to be a sayings document. Um, it may not even have been written, but just a tradition uh, is thought, is said to be the stuff that's in Matthew and Luke that's not found in Mark, even though a lot of Mark is found in both Matthew and Luke. You got it. All so, right. So read that again. So, so okay. They, so, so Meyer notes that Jesus' preaching of the kingdom is found in Mark, Q, M, and indirectly in L and John, and appears in, now this is important, appears in multiple literary forms, prayer, eschatological sayings, and beatitudes. So, so here's the thing. It's not like Jesus is just saying this. It's, it shows up, it shows up in his sayings all over the place. Yeah. It shows up in the, not just in him teaching, but in prayer, eschatological sayings, beatitudes. It's all over the place. Now you say, well, yeah, but that's all the Bible. Yes, but remember, you don't get to, if you're going to be a serious person, you don't get to just say, well, that's in the Gospels, so you know, ditch the Gospels. You say, what do we think in the Gospels actually was said? Yeah. And when you have this said all over the place and in various forms, it, it, it means it probably, it's more likely Jesus actually said this. Yeah. What you should say is not that's in the Bible. What you should say is that is in our ancient sources from antiquity about Jesus. That's right. And sound like a grown-up. Right. Um, right. The, Just okay. wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Uh, Thiessen and Mares. Uh, says, Nobody says that's in, that's in Tacitus. Yeah, we oh, got ditched Tacitus. That's in Suetonius. No, can't. Uh, Plutarch. But yeah. when it's the, comes to the anyway, right. that's why although we there are some skeptics that think the greatest historian of ancient Rome shouldn't be listened to because of one spot where he says that Jesus died under Pilate, but th- that definitely can't be listened. None of these things are serious, right? right? Well, even yeah. John Dominic Crossan on Josephus had to, in in another good book uh, that you should check out if you want to wade into this is uh, four or five views on the historical Jesus or whatever, and John Dominic Crossan put the smackdown on Price for. Robert Price for being so flippant with Josephus. He was like, I mean, even when Crossin has to smack you around on that. Right. And plus, you know, you're way out Josephus there. Scholar, yeah. Well, we're, we were talking about Tastus, but Josephus scholars do think they have reconstructed what, yeah. what the, there is an interpolation likely in Josephus during the part where he's talking about Jesus. Yeah. But, and I have it here. I could read it to you. They think they can reconstruct the what it was originally, and we have an Arabic source that doesn't seem to have the interpolation. So, yeah. the thing is, we we think we know what Josephus said, right? So, but back to Tacitus, got Tacitus, and you've got Josephus both talking about. Well, I brought up Josephus because Tacitus mentions the crucifixion right, of yeah. Pilate, and Josephus mentions it. Yeah, I've got him here. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and also you've got the rabbinic writings uh, composed prior to 200 A.D that talk about Jesus death but the ta- we're not we're not really here to talk about Jesus death we did a whole show on that go back and look at that Jesus oh, outside Oh that was a great show Jesus too. outside the the bible or whatever right. but but um, on Tacitus since you did raise it here's Bart Ehrman on Tacitus Tacitus report confirms what we know from other sources that Jesus was executed by order of the Roman governor of Judea Pontius Pilate sometime during Tiberius reign okay that's Bart Ehrman saying Tacitus confirms Jesus' death. Now, the criticism was, but he got that third hand or something. Right, and I'm going to get to that. But that that's from Ehrman's Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium from 2001, page 59. Um, here's the Crossan, Boyd, Paul, Edie, and Bart Ehrman all agree that this confirms. And some of those are Christians, but they all believe this confirms this. Okay, Paul Edie points out in response to what you just said, because here's what people will say about Tacitus. Yes, he does say that Jesus died, but he got it from... As he's just reporting what he heard from other Christians. Right. Two problems with that. 
well, I'll give you words of Paul Eady. He points out that Tastus was known for checking his sources and did not report gossip. Okay, yeah, because re- even with Josephus, you can Josephus does have some problems. Josephus I mean, is a patchwork; it doesn't even seem to flow. Right, Josephus. Yeah. I mean, forget about what we want to say about interpolation. I mean, Josephus uh, can be a little bit biased. Can be a little bit. Uh, he, he can also be a little bit too hooray for Rome just to make sure, you know, he's, he's uh, patronizing Accepted them. Accepted by them. Yeah. Right. And, and so there, there, there are certain issues you can say about that. You can't make the same claim with Tacitus right. to the extent that you can make it with Josephus. Josephus we can quibble about. But, but Tacitus, Tacitus, no. You know. and, and here's the thing. If you read Tacitus, which I do encourage you to do. Everyone should read Tacitus and Plutarch because they're in the great books of the Western world. What you'll find in Tacitus is that often he will say something like, I don't know this for sure, yeah. or I'm just telling you what I heard, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. He is scrupulous about that. Yeah. But when it comes to the Jesus thing, he doesn't say that. Why doesn't he say it? Well, Thiessen and Mers have argued, and I think well, that he he did have access to Roman documents. Sure. He, I mean, he's he. I mean, now the question then becomes: Well, would this have been reported to Rome? And you get go down a whole rat hole discussing that. But. Uh, this was a holding of Rome. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon to think that there are, un, it's not crazy to think there would have been reports sent to Rome about everything that's happening. And especially with a, a, you know, a radical like Jesus who had gathered the attention of, you know, on one occasion, more than 5,000 people at once, you know, I mean, <laughs> to think that Pilate's probably had a dossier on Jesus. Yeah. But certainly with his death, you don't think this would have been sent to Rome and Cornelius would have had access to that, probably. So, anyway, th- this idea that Tacitus just report what he hears from Christians doesn't float. But that's on the death of Jesus. Let's go back to what Jesus thought about himself because that's what we're here to, to talk about. Uh, but that was a good, a good excursus there. Um, uh, so, from Thiessen and Mers. Finally, there is a consensus that Jesus had a sense of eschatological authority. He saw the dawn of a new world in his actions. Here he goes beyond the Jewish charismatics and prophets known to us before him. Now, uh, let's see. Okay, Meyer says, At the very least, we overhear in the words of the remembered Jesus a claim for the divine significance of his mission as the, not just un, eschatological emissary of God. Now, when you see this all over the Gospels, it, it makes you wonder, but there's more than that. And this is my favorite piece of data, okay? Here it is. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. That was his favorite, and it is used... Here's the thing. It's used 80 times in the Gospels, all right? It is only used one other time about Jesus in the New Testament. And, and it's... So, so here's the thing. If the claim is... And we'll get to why Son of Man is important. The Son of Man is important. But before we get there, if the claim is, well, that would have been a messianic claim about an agent bringing about the kingdom, but that's later Christians who came to believe that, putting that back on the lips of Jesus. That doesn't fly. Because if that was the case, you would see it all over the New Testament. Because then they would, it would be something they used, right? And now and they're the bringing it back on were Jesus. Prior to the writings of the Gospels, right? Yeah, that's right. So when you see it eighty times on the lips of Jesus or about Jesus, and you don't find it elsewhere in in the Christian literature, then that that tells you, or one time in the New Testament, then that tells you. Well, I'll just quote James D. G. Dunn. What yeah. do you think about James D. G. Dunn? Flip-flopper like me. <laughs> he does kind of flip-flop on things. But here's what he says. When we encounter a thoroughly consistent and distinctive feature, 
a tradition which depicts Jesus regularly using the phrase Son of Man and virtually no other use of the phrase. It simply beggars scholarship to deny that this feature stemmed from a remembered speech usage of Jesus himself. What do you think of... Well, my understanding is that you're the New Testament scholar here, but my understanding is that he, at one point, did not believe, not this issue, but he, at one point, he did not believe that Jesus... Or that the early church claimed Jesus was divine, or, or, or worshipped worship him as divine. God. But then yeah. he changed on that. Yeah, he's one of the. He, he's kind of like Thomas Odin in the sense that the older he gets, of course, Odin's no longer with us. The more to the right he goes. Yeah, and so uh, well, for, that's when you learn yeah. more. Now, mo- yeah. <laughs> now, most people uh, know him from his uh, views on the new perspective of Paul's, but he's also a historical Jesus scholar too. So. Okay, but the, the in the theolo- theological circles, people know him more for for his Romans commentary and the word. But I like okay. I like Dunn. He's okay, so here's the thing: he, the, it's not just son of man, right? Because a lot of people say, well, you could call a lot of different things and people son of man. Fine, but he uses the definite article, the son of man, as yeah. we translate it. Now, here's the thing about that: this everyone standing around would have known this was a reference to Daniel chapter seven. Mm-hmm. And there, the Son of Man is God's special eschatological agent to bring about the kingdom. So, so, so here's the thing. You can try to fight this a lot of different ways, but unless you just want to say we can't know anything about history and do bird box when it comes to history, right. where you put a blindfold over your face because let's not look at it. Or do you want to play Christian. with beads like the Jesus Seminar and right. be totally debunked a decade later and irrelevant? Okay. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, and the fact is they, they were late to the party. Thomas Jefferson reportedly did that. You know? <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. Um, here's the thing. Yeah. The, so Jesus, this is, these are the kind of reasons why scholars agree. Now notice, I'm not just saying scholars agree, end of story. Scholars agree, and here's the evidence why they agree, right. that Jesus thought of himself as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom, as if he's holding up a sign saying, watch my life and see what I do as a part right. of God's special program. Like Neil, who was holding up a sign yeah. saying, watch and what I do. And that's what they agree on. We're not saying that they all agree rose from the dead or whatever else, but we're saying that, that they agree that Jesus' self-identity was that of special eschatological agent on Yahweh. Yes, and you know what else? Right. If I wanted to make it, and I told someone this, uh, recently, they were like, "Why don't you argue then that he thought that he thought of himself as God incarnate, and that he predicted his crucifixion specifically and resurrection?" And I said, "I actually think there's good reason, and there are scholars who believe that, who think there's a really good case for that. Obviously, yeah. however, I'm trying to make it harder on myself. I'm being as conservative as I possibly can in my claims, and I think if you even go as conservative as he thought of himself as God's special the agent." to bring about the kingdom, as if he was saying, watch my life and see what happens, that's enough to get you the recalibrated plausibility, which is what I call it, that overcomes this extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and means that the resurrection case, as it then goes after that, is more plausible than any competing hypothesis. Yes. So Even that's, though it was already more plausible, this just well, puts right. it way over the top. This, yeah. What you're saying, this eliminates bumper stickerism. That right. even the bumper sticker crowd now said, now you don't have to take it seriously because you want to be flippant, but if you want us to take your argument seriously, you've got to deal with this stuff. Yeah. You know, you've got to sift through these. these, these so now parts. here's where it stands if you're a skeptic. You've got to knock down uh, God's existence. Mm-hmm. You've got to knock down the uh, claims of Jesus about himself. And I didn't even get into, by the way, 
the stuff he did that demonstrates that he thought of himself this way. Right. Like, you know, riding into sayings. on a donkey and all yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of things we could do. But 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 I'm just going with that. You gotta knock down all that stuff. You gotta knock down the gospels. You gotta knock down Paul. You you gotta knock down uh these these non-Christian sources like Tacitus and Josephus for some pieces of the case. You gotta set up a competing hypothesis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That accounts for all these facts, like that Jesus thought of himself that way, that he died, that he appeared to pe- that people think he appeared to them after his death, that they were willing to die for at the empty tomb. All these kind of things. You've got to overcome all of that stuff and set up an, a, a thing that accounts for all of them better than the resurrection. Good luck. I agree with you that I at least appreciate when people try to do that, but I know why they don't try to do that, and it's because every time a skeptic tries to come up with a naturalistic hypothesis, it gets in your words, shredded by the Christian apologist yeah. because nothing fits as well as the resurrection. That's right. There you go. Yep. Recalibrated plausibility. Worth using. Worth <laughs> worth making a thing out of more than has been. Well, past. someone said, why are you giving yeah. it a new name and all these kind of things? Because it's already out there. It's about branding. No, <laughs> well, it, it's it's already out there, but people don't use it. Right. People don't point to it. And to me, I can only speak from my personal experience. I was already thought we had a good case. But when I realized and understood this, it moved it up there with the Kalam into, oh, yeah, well, okay then. Yeah, maybe I, what the Bible says happened, <laughs> yes. it happened. You know? Yeah. Go figure. So, so, yeah, all right. So, anyway, um, we appreciate you being here. Now, uh, I don't know if you made it this far, but we have had a couple of new patrons. I haven't even told you. We've had a couple of new patrons for the Patreon program. If you'd like to support this show, don't turn us off. If you'd like to support this show, please click somewhere up here if you're watching on the screen, and or if you're not, if you're listening by audio, uh, please visit Trinity Radio or Patreon.com/slash Trinity Radio. I always get it wrong. Trinity uh, Patreon.com/slash Trinity Radio. Patreon.com/slash Trinity Radio. And and here's the thing: One there's stuff we need to do. There, there's stuff we're trying to get to. There's other projects. As I hope you can see. What has happened on this program over the past couple of years since we've gone video and Jonathan's had his debate, I've had this debate, we've had um, you know changes to the set, we have new equipment, we've gone and done events at other churches and all that. The patrons help make that kind of stuff possible, and there's other stuff we want to do, and you can see that it's working. That's right. It's obvious that it's working, and so we really need your help. If you believe in what we're doing, if you believe in evangelism that uses apologetics, please uh, help us out with this. And uh, one thing that I want us to do, and so I'm going to go ahead and say it so that we have to do it, is we need to we want to start doing live streams just for the patrons, yeah. or at least an after the show for the patrons, where uh, there's a little bit, maybe even every week, that just goes to the patrons. Not much, but maybe 10 minutes or something, yeah. in addition to other free stuff that we want to get back to giving you. <laughs> so so please uh, consider that. Also check out the... I'm just going to say this today. Just check out the other shows on the Trinity Commission. Oh, I will say this. Dr. Layton Flowers, who's a professor for Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, has a new book out called... I don't know. Something to do with provision. Yeah. God's <laughs> provision for all... Okay. Or- yeah, God's provision for all how, people. Or how sloppy! It's on our imprint. We don't know the name. Well, of the book. it's fine. But go check that out. And <laughs> he's got uh, a new book. If you're interested in, because those keeping score, it's two zero two for him, zero. For well, me. a lot of people have said that, that with, when I brought the free will argument. Yeah, but the Bible teaches determinism. No, if you didn't. have God, you have determinism. 
Well, you're right that there are people that think that, and there are brothers and sisters, okay? You're right that people are wrong about that issue. Soterio ban, Soterio ban. So um, what I would have you do is consult the writings of Dr. Leighton Flowers, yeah. um, and, and I think you'll see a good case that the Bible doesn't teach that, but the Bible teaches libertarian freedom. The Antinocene Fathers, too, are worth reading on that. So uh, check that out, and as always, we would love for you to audit classes or become a student at Trinity College of the Bible yes. and Theological Seminary. Learn all about the historical Jesus from guys like us. TrinitySEM.edu, TrinitySEM.edu, and maybe you say, well, I don't want to become a professional minister. That's okay. Lots of people don't. Lots of people that are students here don't. Uh, Lots of... Go, go well, some of the professors are not. <laughs> you just want to you you just want to learn more, go deeper, and be better prepared. And so we want you to have that too. So um, uh, consider that. At least visit our website and fill out the form there to get more information. That would be fantastic. We'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. This is the last word. I don't know. Listeners to our program will know that I love. I don't know. I Don't Know is an opportunity to learn something that you didn't know. It's an opportunity to show the person with whom you're discussing these issues about God and the resurrection that you're humble and you're willing to continue the conversation at a later date, and it can be a learning process for both of you. I love I Don't Know. But there are some caveats. There is an instruction booklet for those who wish to use I Don't Know effectively. First of all, I don't know should not be the end of the story. You should use it as an opportunity to, as I said before, go learn something and share it with others. Secondly, I don't know cannot actually be the response and defense of your position. It's one thing to say that you don't know. It's another thing to say, I don't know and therefore I win. When you say I don't know and therefore I win, not only did you not win, but it makes everyone wonder, what are you doing here to begin with? Why are you putting yourself up as some kind of an answer giver when you don't know? People that don't know should recognize that they don't know. And instead of telling other people that they also don't know, they should go learn something because then at least they'll know something. Why do people operate this way and use I don't know as their answer? I don't know. If you would like more content, click here and keep watching Bible Studies, click up here. And finally, we want you to subscribe. We need more subscribers, so click here.